0: Our passage this morning can be found in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. All right. Hear the word of the Lord. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that, that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be, and you know the way to where I am going. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's a joy to be with you. I can see that uh, I just see more and more faces uh, coming as we're sort of it feels like we're emerging out of COVID. I don't want to speak too too soon here, but uh, it feels like we're just starting to emerge and more and more uh, members, more and more guests that we're seeing uh, come. So welcome to everybody who's here. It's a joy to stand up here and to open God's word and to just um, just explore together what what God is telling us each and every week. Uh, and so we are continuing our study of the I am statements of Jesus. We have worked through in the last many weeks, we've worked through a number of his I am statements, spending about four weeks in each one. So we've we've tried to hit very carefully the context for the statement. What, what what is When Jesus speaks one of his statements, such as I am the bread of life, what's happening? What's going on in that moment? What exactly did he mean when he said that? And then we spend time usually on the statement itself, And then what we've seen in the last couple of weeks, uh, the last couple of statements is that we've also seen an aftermath of the statement. There's been a response, oftentimes from the Jews who are listening to him, they're dialoguing with him, and it causes a certain response that wells up inside of them. And so that's, that's really been our goal. We have not gone through John chapter by chapter, but what we've done is we've stopped at very particular areas and then we've moved on. Now, I say that. Because we're now jumping from John chapter 11, where we were last week, we spent four weeks there talking about the raising of Lazarus. We're jumping three chapters now into John 14. And so it's going to feel strange as we're just sort of plopping down now in John 14. And so what I want to do is give us some context for what has happened over the last couple of weeks. And then we're going to explore the next statement that Jesus makes about himself, um, one that I will primarily talk about next week. Okay, so the statement itself will be next week. Uh, today we'll be talking about some of the context that sets up that statement. So let's pray, and then I'd like to jump into our text. Lord Jesus, we ask now. We've we've prayed and we've worshipped. We have we have come to you, recognizing you. Uh, As as a God who is so powerful, magnificent, worthy, uh, loving, giving, righteous, there are so many words that come to mind, Lord, we've come to you, we've worshipped you, uh, along a lot of those lines, we've recognized our lack, as soon as we saw you as glorious, we saw ourselves in comparison, We've come to you recognizing even specific sins and ways in which our hearts oftentimes will prefer other, quote unquote, gods ahead of you. But then maybe most importantly, we have seen the gospel as Jesus, you have died upon a cross that we might be made right despite our sinful living. And we've repented, I pray, and turn to you and put our full trust in you. And now we come asking God that you would give us something from your word. At one point Jesus you described, you quoted the Old Testament in describing your word as bread. and now we come hoping to eat a meal. I pray God that you would help me as the, ser- the, the head server of, of the meal. I pray God that I would do it well. I pray God that it would be um, it would be something that satisfies our hearts because it's from you and not from me. So God, come and meet us now in your word. Our Bibles are open. Our hearts are ready. We want to receive from you now. Some of us are hurting in this room. Some of us hearing my voice on on camera are hurting. And now we, we ask, Lord, is that you would give us something. You would help us the way you helped your disciples in this moment that we're about to cover. So God, meet us now and fill us, and give us a joy that undergirds even our deepest sorrow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I wonder if you can think of a time in your life where there was a situation that just felt completely hopeless. A time in your life where there's very few bright lines that you can see as you scan the world around you. A time when it just seems like there's nothing but despair. There's very few uh, moments of happiness and joy. And I know some of you are thinking, oh, great. I'm so glad I came to church this morning to hear this, right? I wonder if you could think about that time, perhaps for you, that's a distant memory. That's something that's happened way in the past, you you know of a time in your past where that was is so painful, there was very little you could look at to encourage yourself by the world around you. For some of you, it may be right now. You might be living in the moment that I'm describing. There's a man named Horatio Spafford. He, some of you may know this story, but he is the writer, he's the author of the psalm, or the, the hymn that we sing, It Is Well. So, some of you, if you've been coming to Echo for some time or another church that's a little bit more traditional in their hymns, you've sung It Is Well. It, it's, it repeats, It Is Well, It Is Well, It Is Well with My Soul. He wrote that song, but his story behind that song and behind his life is worth noting. It's worth bringing up this morning before we jump into our text. Uh, Horatio Spafford was a young lawyer who lived in Chicago, and he was developing a small fortune. And he also had a family uh, with his wife. He had four daughters. There's a they were a family of six. We are now a family of six as well. Uh, But Spafford's fortune evaporated in the wake of the Great Chicago Fire. So some a big historical moment that. Uh, Many, many know of in 1871, a fire devastated Chicago and Horatio Spafford was completely wiped out in, in any of his, his income that he had made. He had invested heavily in real estate and all of that real estate was wiped out. He lost everything overnight. And then uh, he decided that they needed a break, their family from all that they were doing in Chicago. And so he put his family on a ship to sail them over to England, to spend some time over there, actually to do the Lord's work. They wanted to connect with D.L. Moody, who was a famous evangelist at the time. They wanted to get involved in the ministry that he was doing overseas. And so he loads his wife and his four daughters onto a ship. And at the last minute, he's called away to something for work and he will meet them later. But that ship while sailing across the Atlantic sinks and his wife alone recovers and telegraphs him the the, the short statement, the ship sank, I alone survived. And so he receives the news of four daughters killed in the Atlantic Ocean. And so he's lost his fortune. He's lost four of his daughters, all four of his daughters. And he then travels across the Atlantic himself to meet his grieving wife. And so the legend goes, and I don't have historical proof for this. So the legend goes, he penned that song on the boat as he approached the point, the geographical point where the boat, the previous ship had sank and his daughters had died. It is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. And I want to ask a question this morning. How can a man who's been through such devastation, who's been through such despair and pain in his life, write a song like that, where the chorus of the song is, it is well with my soul, which is old English for us, but basically means I'm okay. My soul is well. I am okay. Okay. Now, I imagine for Horatius Bafford, it's kind of a hopeful words. In other words, I don't know that he was feeling them in the moment that he wrote them. I think he was hoping to feel them in the writing. You've ever written that way where you write something or you say something hoping that that thing will be true as you say it or as you write it? Everything is okay. It is well. With my soul, having lost all my income and my four daughters, it is well with my soul. How does a person in their darkest moment write a hymn like that? That's a question that I want to ask as we jump into our text this morning. As we pick up in our story in the book of John, John chapter 14, the disciples are similarly at probably one of the darkest and lowest points of their lives, they have hit rock bottom. Not because, this is important now, not because the events they dread are upon them, but sometimes, can you relate? It's worse before the events when you're anticipating the events themselves, okay? So we go through a hard time, but it's the dread of the hard time. It's the anxiety we feel of the hard time ahead of the hard time, that is sometimes the worst, and the thing itself that we dread when it comes upon us is oftentimes, maybe even just a little bit, lesser than the dread of it in, 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 that we experience beforehand. So, these disciples, John chapter 14, what have we seen of these men? Well, For three years, these men have walked around with Jesus. Jesus had an itinerant ministry. And what that means is he didn't really have a home. You remember what he tells the disciples when he first calls them? He said, said, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man does not have a home. Why? What is he saying? He's saying that over three years, he just traveled from place to place to place. And what did these men do? They gave up everything to follow him to be where he was, to be, to have the same itinerant ministry that Jesus himself had. And they did so probably most of them expecting that Jesus would be the Messiah, which meant of course, to them that he would usher in the kingdom of God in glory. And they would have a chance to sit at his right hand and at his left hand in glory, reigning over the coming kingdom of God together with him. And they had, if you will, invested their lives, probably many of them in hopes that that would be the final result. Glory, joy, happiness. But there had been indications all along that this hoped for conclusion of their earthly life was maybe not going to happen. For instance, very annoyingly to them, throughout the gospels, Jesus keeps talking about his coming death. Very annoying to the disciples. Stop talking about that Jesus. We're not talking about your death. We're talking about glory. In John 13:21, just just one chapter before the chapter that we're covering here. He tells them that one of their own is going to betray them, betray him. One amongst them. That can't be good news. Of these group of guys that's been following around with Jesus, one of them's going to betray Jesus. Then in John thirteen thirty six through 38, Jesus tells Peter, by the way, this is just before John 14, just before our text, Jesus tells Peter, who is their leader, that he's going to deny Jesus three times. What is happening here? This vision of glory has completely faded away. And by the way, we are right now on the eve of the crucifixion. Tomorrow, from our perspective, Jesus will be crucified so we are one day, one night specifically before the crucifixion and the anxiety and the fear has reached its pinnacle amongst the disciples. There's nothing but despair. There's nothing but darkness. They, they can feel it. They've been in Jerusalem. They've heard what people have been saying. They know what the Pharisees and the chief priests want to do with Jesus. In fact, just after the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11, they decided, that's it. We're killing him. It's over. Chapter 12 was the decision-making point for the religious leaders that Jesus would be put to death. And chapter 13 now is, of course, among something that we know, we all know, the pa- where they celebrate the Passover meal, what we call the Last Supper together. It's of course a sweet time, but don't miss it. It's a dark time. It's a time for despair. They're anxious. They're fearful. There's a lot of inward pain going on in them. So it is this teaching that Jesus is about to give us in that context now that we're going to look at. Jesus says in John 14:1 let not your hearts be troubled. Why does he have to say that? Because their hearts were troubled. So in, in some translations, it says, stop letting your hearts be troubled. In other words, there's a command, don't, don't. I, you're already feeling this, stop. Stop feeling that way. But I love what about scripture that it doesn't just give us the command. Hey, stop it. Cut that out. But that there's always so much more underneath. There's always so much more what we call grounding the command to stop something. So here's point number one, if you're taking notes, and by the way, I I forgot the main point. I walked right through it. So if you're taking notes right now, the main point is don't be anxious, but believe in God through Jesus. Very simple. Very simple point in these next four verses. Don't be anxious, but believe in God through Jesus. Now here's point, sub-point number one. If you're taking notes, anxiety and faith are opposites. Now, I know that there is a sort of generalized anxiety that many people deal with. Many people on this earth will deal with a with what they call general anxiety. Anxiety, uh, for instance, comes in a lot of different forms. So sometimes it's pinpointed on a a particular event or concern, or or I don't want to lose this thing, and sometimes it's. I don't even know what I'm feeling. I don't even I don't have a specific thing and we call that generalized anxiety. There's not a thing that I'm feeling that I that I'm, I'm particularly anxious about. It's just that these um, th- this feeling inside of me is overwhelming me. Okay? So I want to say first off the bat that anxiety has a lot of different forms and I'm not here this morning to try to cure anxiety in every person because anxiety will come with a lot of different causes and a lot of different reasons and sometimes it is a chemical response that happens in the brain but sometimes and 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 this is the particular anxiety i'm talking about this morning it comes because there's a particular thing that's ahead that we dread there's something ahead in our life, whether it's real and we know it's going to happen or whether we think it's going to happen. We, we think about that potential and it's at that point that we just, we, we, we lose it. We, we just, we're overcome with a sense of dread that oftentimes will, will cripple us, paralyze us from being able to sometimes even go outside, sometimes even engage in certain things that we know we ought to be doing because we're anxious. And that's the kind that I'm talking about this morning. So if there's something for you where you feel anxious about some future, some potential future, here's the point. Here's the point I want to make. The opposite of that is faith. And I'm not here to condemn you. I feel it too. Every human being feels this at some point in their lives, probably many, many times in their lives where there's a future that they're afraid of. And here's what Jesus says to the disciples that are afraid of the future. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I think that's a Bible way of saying anxiety, at least this form of anxiety. Don't let your hearts be troubled, but what? What's the alternative to that? but believe in God and believe also in me. Do you see then that faith and anxiety, at least in this particular instance of anxiety are opposites of one another. Don't let your hearts be troubled, but believe in God and believe also in me. The counter to anxiety is believing in God and believing in Christ. And I want to stop for a minute and ask why. Why is the counter to anxiety believing in God and believing also in Christ? By the way, that's one belief. You don't don't split that up. I got, okay, I'm believing in God. You believe in Jesus. I'll believe in God. That's one thing altogether. The reason that that's the counter to anxiety now is because it is all anxiety is all a matter of where our eyes are. Okay. Now I'm I'm going to speak metaphorically for a minute. All right, it's all a matter of where are your eyes, and this is the same question I ask myself when I have an anxiety, when I'm thinking of something that brings me anxiety. I'm asking now where my eyes are. Now I want to illustrate this with a passage that unfortunately has been taught so many times in church; it's become cliche. So you're going to have to excuse me, but that doesn't change the fact that it's here in the Bible, but it has been taught a lot. And maybe you've never heard this. I've heard it taught a lot in church. So just going to say it, it is still there. And it's still a truth that we need to know. And it is in Matthew 14, verses 28 through 30. And it's the verses where Peter is walking on water. You guys know these verses. Jesus is walking on water and Peter has this great moment of faith. And he says, Jesus, I want to come to where you are. And Jesus says, well, get out of the boat. Come on. I'm paraphrasing. He says, get out of the boat. Come on, come to where I am. And he takes a step on water and the miracle is happening for Peter. He says, Peter says in verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And and Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now notice these next words. Notice verse 30 here. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began in beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Okay. Just consider for a minute where Peter's eyes were metaphorically and physically Peter's eyes were on Jesus. Lord, he's speaking to him. Lord, command me to come out. I'm seeing you. I don't care about the wind and the waves. I'm seeing you in that particular moment. Jesus has come. He starts to step out, and at some point along the way, the Bible doesn't tell us where, he saw the wind and the waves. His eyes, figuratively and physically, went on to the wind and the waves. And it's at that point that he began to sink. Where are your eyes? when it comes to anxiety friends it is just it is a human condition and part of our sinful hearts that we do not perfectly throughout our christian life put our eyes on jesus and so it is not to your shame when i ask the question where are your eyes it is out of love and out of the desire to say what is the solution to anxiety at least this form of it get your eyes back on jesus Put your eyes back on him and not on the circumstance, not on the situation that is going on in your particular moment. We are meant to see our situation and our world through Jesus. So it doesn't mean don't look at the world, blind yourself to the situation, pretend it doesn't exist. That's not the answer. The answer to all of life, not just anxieties and troubles and things that are coming out ahead of us. The answer to all of life is to see the world through the lens, as it were, of Jesus. In other words, I'm always looking at Jesus when I view the world. Is this not true of our, what we call our worldview? Our worldview is the way we conceive of the world and what is right in the world and how we should live in the world. Are we not always viewing the world, our, my as a human being interaction with the world through the lens of Jesus? How does Jesus tell me to view the world? What does Jesus say the world is made of? What does Jesus say is right and wrong in the world? Everything I'm doing, I'm viewing through as if Jesus were a glass that I'm now looking through to see the world. So I don't have my eyes off of the world. I have my eyes looking at the world through Jesus as a lens. And when I look through at the world with Jesus as a lens, I see something different than if I were to take the lens away. And I just look at the world as it is. For a moment in time, Peter had taken that lens away. He just saw the wind and the waves. He didn't see the fact that the Lord of the universe was standing there on that lake, calling him to himself as if Jesus didn't have control over wind and waves and water and physics and all of those things. So the issue is this, will we look at the world and our problems through Jesus Not ignoring our problems, but knowing who he is all the while we're looking at our problems. And we stare our problems straight straight in the face, knowing that the God of the universe is for us and has us. Now, Jesus is going to give us reasons now why believing in him and believing in the Father is better than anxiety. And I want us to see them. There are two and then i'm going to switch them into our sort of our subpoints okay so here's the two things i see number 1 the reason that they are not to fear is that the thing they fear most this is hard listen the thing they fear most is actually the best thing for them that's number 1 number 2 jesus will return eventually to take away all pain and death, okay? So here's, now I'm gonna make a point out of the first one, okay? And here it is. Don't be anxious, but believe because the bad thing is actually the best thing. This is hard, but this is biblical. And and I'm gonna do my best to try to lay it out for us. Jesus tells them, in this passage that he is leaving them, but he says he's going to prepare something amazing. Look at John 14. Let's pick up in verse two. Why, remember what verse one said? Don't let your hearts be troubled, but believe. Now he's gonna give the reasons why. Here's, here's reason, I see two reasons in what we're about to read. Look at this. Because, I'm adding that, I'm adding those words right there, Don't let your hearts be troubled, but believe because in my father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself and where I am, you may be also. Now, Jesus talks about his father's house. This is the first thing he talks about. Okay. And I don't think we have to get overly complicated with this. I think his father's house is heaven. Okay. I think that is our place where we go because we are in Christ. We go to a place that is called the father's house. Now, it has a lot of different names throughout scripture, but here's what I can tell you it is it is the place where we live. With God Himself. Unbroken fellowship, unmediated fellowship. It's just, we're with Him. That's what we call heaven. Now, whatever else heaven is, that's the core of what heaven is, okay? You, you can talk, you know, I used to be a youth pastor and I used to get into talking about what I thought heaven was like and the particulars of it and all the great things that we would do there. And I realized later on in life, that was a big mistake because the biggest thing that is there in heaven is God. And we can all get caught up in the, oh, but I think it's going to be like this and won't it be great? And there's going to be, a... God is there. Jesus is there. There's no more sin. So there's nothing else blocking us. We get to be with him. And so Jesus here in John 14 calls it his father's house. Because what do you do with people in a house? You live together with them in a house. Jesus says, that's my father's house. It has many rooms. What does that mean? It means there's plenty of room for all of you there. And he tells them that he's going to prepare a place for them. Now, at this point I've heard a lot of pastors, okay, say that Jesus has been gone the past 2000 years because he's preparing heaven for us. Okay, and there's often a joke that follows along which says if the earth was created in 6 days, heaven is so amazing that it's taken 2000 years to create. Okay? And you may have heard that before. I think that's wrong. I do not think that's what Jesus means when he means I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I don't mean to insult you if you have that view, but I think that that's not what the text is getting at here. Okay. The preparation Jesus is making, it happened on the cross. What was the preparation that Jesus was preparing so that we could be in the father's house? He wasn't preparing the father's house. He was preparing the way to the father's house. There is no way we could have gone to the father's house if Jesus hadn't prepared the way by dying upon a cross so that our sins could be upon him on the cross and we would have no more guilt. There would be no wrath left and we would have Jesus' righteousness and now we can enter the father's house because you don't dwell with the father when there's sin. So Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He means what he's doing tomorrow. From their perspective, what he's doing tomorrow night is preparing the place. But this was the thing that the disciples feared the most. Jesus, you might die. He says, I, I'm going to, I'm going to. And my dying is preparing a place in my father's house for you. Isn't it interesting here that the thing that the disciples most dreaded, the thing that was causing them their hearts to be troubled most was actually the best thing possible for them. Here's the truth we need to be reminded of every day. We are human beings. Do you know that? You're a human being. You're not God. I'm a human being. I am not God. What does that mean? It means I have amongst my sinful heart, which is true. I have limited knowledge about how the world works. And you know one of the things I'm really limited on? The future. I'm really limited on the future. I can tell you what I think is going to happen, but we even got taught in James to say, don't say you're going to go down there tomorrow and do this or that and and take care of business. Say, Lord willing. Why? What's James doing? He's humbling you. You don't know that you're even going to go do the most basic, simple task tomorrow. It's all in the Lord's hands. You're a human, you don't know the future. You don't know how it's going to work out. You don't know that a certain event in your life is going to turn out for good or for bad. Let me prove it. I've seen people who have all of a sudden come into a lot of money. Now, let me ask you this. Any of you toss and turn on your pillow at night, dreading that at some point you might come into a lot of money? Anybody been like, I'm I'm just anxious, Pastor? Because I might, there might be money coming my way in the future. And yet, if you were to look at them, that money was one of the root causes of pulling them away from the Lord. And there are some who I know who no longer walk with God. And as, at least as I look at it, that seems to have been tied to them coming into a lot of money, which is why the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. But I don't think you're anxious about that. Right? But these people didn't, this person didn't see what was coming for them. They didn't know. I've seen the greatest tragedy in a person's life, bring them to God. You probably have too. difficult, painful, awful situations in somebody's life has ultimately led to them coming to put their trust into Jesus or to put their trust in Jesus. Might I say more fully so that it has completely changed the way they live their lives. And there's more joy and happiness than they have ever had before because they're finding their life in Christ in a way that they never did before. What caused that? What's the earthly human cause of that tragedy, pain, but you and I are convinced that tragedy and pain in our lives is going to just, that's it. It's over. It's going to destroy us. The point is you and I don't know the future and you don't, you and I don't know causes and effects the way God does. You and I don't know the way things are going to turn out. Jesus here did. And he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe. Why? because what you actually think is the worst thing in the world is actually me going to prepare a place for me, AKA, I'm gonna give you eternal life by this awful thing that you're dreading. Number three, here's what else I see there. Don't be anxious, but believe, why? Because all tears are temporary. Here's the other amazing truth that we have to have in front of us. Look at verse three again. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. Jesus tells the disciples in no uncertain terms that he is coming again. Okay? So the, 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 the fear and the pain and the thing that is so awful in your life, here's what I can say about it. Just like the, 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 the disciples missing Jesus, it's temporary. It is temporary. Now you may feel like 50, 60 years of loss is is eternity. It isn't. It isn't. It is temporary and it is a blip on the scale if we extend the, 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 the timeline to eternity. It is nothing. And so the thing that you most fear in life, the worst thing that could possibly happen, Christian, I'm talking to Christians here, those who put their trust in Christ, the worst thing that could happen to you is a momentary blip because Jesus will come back. And what does he say about coming back? What does the book of revelation tell us revelation 21, three through four. Here's what it says at the very end of our Bibles. And I heard a loud voice from the throne away. Did you notice how many tears of yours Jesus is going to wipe away? Did you see that? Like some tears, like, like there's going to be, like some of the griefs can be taken care of, but i got other griefs going to stick with me forever. No, every tear, every single one, he will wipe away. Now, do I understand that perfectly? How will all grief be gone? Won't I have a memory? I don't, there's so many questions that I have, right? But this is what the Bible tells me. He will somehow wipe away all of our grief and all of our pain and the death, which causes so much of our grief and pain. But right now we live in a time that here in Revelation, it calls the former things. Did you notice that? The very end, the verse, he says, for the former things have passed away. Well that's future, that's when Jesus comes back, but now, right now, we live in some t- a time that the Bible says that's the former things. What does the former things mean? We live in a time where there are tears and pain and death and mourning. But all of those things have already been defeated on the cross. And this is incredibly confusing for many, many Bible students and Bible readers. But um, let me try to spell it out for you. All of those things have been defeated. But the presence of them is we still have for the moment. We live in something that theologians call the time between the times. What do I mean by that? What does that mean? What What do they mean? Time between the times. Well, in the Old Testament, when there was sin and there was pain They looked ahead mysteriously to somehow God was going to take that away. They didn't know it hadn't happened yet from a time period standpoint, Jesus hadn't yet died on the cross, but when Jesus died on the cross and when he rose again from the dead, he defeated death. It's done. Satan done. Sin done. If you put your trust in Christ, it's all done. But yet, I still live with sin. I I still live with death. I still live with grief and with mourning. And theologians say, yeah, there's this overlap where the kingdom has begun. It's happened. It's It's happening in your hearts right now, Christian. And yet you still experience the presence of these things because Jesus hasn't come back a second time to remove these things from us. But they're defeated. They're done. And so we live in this weird time where we can talk about victory in Christ. And yet we still grieve. But Jesus says, don't grieve. He says, don't be anxious. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled because I'm coming back. And even the worst pain is temporary. Because I'm going I'm to wipe away those tears from your eyes. Now, I want to take this up a step. Not only should we know that about Jesus coming back. I'm going to argue that we must know that as a Christian. And here's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.8. He's talking about his own ministry. Paul's about to die, by the way, in 2 Timothy 4. And he says, I'm at the very end of my life. And he says, henceforth, there's laid up for me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing Christian. That appearing is the second coming of Jesus. And you might think that, no, it doesn't say that it says appearing. It doesn't say which appearing Jesus appeared twice, you know, yeah, but in context, seven verses earlier, Paul says this 2 Timothy 4 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. When does Jesus judge the living and the dead? In his second coming. So in context, which appearing is Paul talking about here? His second coming. Who gets the crown of righteousness? Which, by the way, that's not like the special badge you get for being a good Christian. I want you guys to get that. Like, like this is not like, oh, some of you are going to have a crown of righteousness and others of you are not in heaven. This is what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to have the crown of righteousness. Who gets it? Who gets to have it in 2 Timothy 4 Those who have loved his second coming. What does that mean? We're anticipating it. We're longing for it. We are seeing, we're living our lives in light of the hope of his second coming. Meaning that we don't grieve like those who have no hope, right? Doesn't he say that elsewhere? Thessalonians? We don't grieve like those who have no hope. We grieve like those who know that this is temporary. You have to know that Christian. Christian. It's not just a nice suggestion from your pastor. You have to know that you have to live in light of that. And it changes the way you live. You, 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 you become a different person. It's almost as if you become, you have a a shield around you that protects you from absolute devastating despair. Because whatever hits you in this life, however hard it hits you, you know that he is coming back to make all things right. You don't like the way the world is going right now? I don't care what side of the aisle you were on politically. You don't like the way the world is going right now? He's coming back to make it all right. So it shields you from the devastation. So Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled because I'm coming again and your pain is temporary and you will one day dwell for all eternity free from mourning and pain and grief and death. So Christian, don't take your eyes off of Jesus coming. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus You love him now. You know him now. You can worship him now. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus coming. He's coming again in real bodily form, in the flesh. He's coming again. First, because it is a weapon to battle against anxiety. That's one reason. That's a good enough reason right there. But most importantly, because it means you're a Christian and it means that you have put your trust in him if you have your eyes on his second coming. Now I want to close. I just have a few things left to say, and I just want to close by talking directly to those who might be hearing my voice. Perhaps you're watching, perhaps you're here and you've not yet put your trust into Christ. I'd like to share something important with you. I would like to just lay out for you some, a basic Christian truth that I think is of absolute utmost importance for you to hear. And the first point is this, Jesus is God. He came to earth as a baby and he took on human flesh. That's a, that is, that is just a truth right there. That is what we believe. It's the core of what we believe in Christianity, but not just that he spent 33 years on this earth and he lived a perfectly righteous life. He obeyed the will of his father perfectly. And one day, In fact, the day after our story takes place, he would be crucified by his enemies, but they didn't know what they didn't know is that Jesus would unite all who put their faith in him to himself in that moment. Okay. This is really crazy, but listen, listen carefully. Everyone who ultimately at some point in their life puts their trust into Christ, get ready, got united with him on the cross in his crucifixion. 2,000 years ago, so that if you put your trust in Christ, when he died in a way you died on that cross and the wrath of God was completely poured out and it wasn't on you per se, it was on him, but you were in him and he took it. He took your wrath. He took your punishment and you were in him in that moment. If you put your trust in Christ, so that when he died it was as if you were dying and in so doing Jesus was able to pay the price of every sin that his people had ever committed freeing them from the wrath of god and 3 days later he rose again from the grave why because death couldn't hold him because he wasn't ultimately sinful and now we live in a time when death has been defeated but yet its presence still lingers here. And that final moment when death will be destroyed is when Jesus returns again to judge everyone who was alive and who has died. Every single person who has ever lived is judged. And where you stand, hear me now carefully, where you stand when that judgment comes depends on whether you were with him when he died. Well, how do I do that? put your trust into Christ. Believe in him. Know that he did that. Say, Jesus, I want that. I long for you. I want you. That's faith. Faith has this element of, I know you did that. And faith has this element of, I love that you did that. In other words, it has this emotional aspect to it where you don't just know some things about Jesus. You actually love him. And friends, if you're listening to my voice and you have not yet done that, know that he's coming again and he will judge the living and the dead. Meaning if your life ends first, you'll be dead and you'll be raised for a moment to be judged. And if he comes and finds you living, you'll still be judged. So it's the living and the dead. It's everybody. And the judgment is based upon, were you there with Jesus when he died? Did you put your faith in him and unite yourself with him entirely? And it's for those that the wrath of God has been removed. And it's for those that they carry in themselves the righteousness of Jesus, because it's as if Jesus lived. That's the way, that's the life God sees in you. And so, my encouragement to you and my pleading with you is that you would consider deeply what I just said and that you would put your trust in Christ, that you would put your full faith into Him and so be saved. And so, I want to end by talking because I know that what I said this this morning is for Christians. It's not five steps to have less anxiety in your life to everybody. It's that Jesus is the only antidote to this. He is the only one. And I want those of you who have not put your trust in Christ. I want you to know that. I want you to know that peace and that love. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, every one of us deals with anxieties. Some of us more, some of us less, but every single one of us has futures that we dread, that we hope will never come about. But I pray Lord that we would trust in your words this morning. As you have told us that the worst thing possible is working out for our good Romans chapter eight, verse 28 and on. And that the worst thing possible is temporary because you're coming again to wipe every tear from our eyes. God, may we know that and may we live our lives that way because that's what it means to be a Christian. We look forward to your coming. We say with the saints for the last 2000 years, Maranatha, Lord come quickly. And we long for it because this world is growing stale. And as we put our eyes more on you, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. And we don't hate this world. We don't hate this physical world. We love your creation in it. We love the way it points to you. But Lord, the world's system and the world's sin, which we also find in our own hearts, we're tired, we're tired. And so we say as a church, Lord, come quickly. But now God, prepare us for what you have in store for us now in this life, in this world, before you come, that we can do all that you've called us to do to be obedient and be on mission for you until the day which you come and you take us to be with you. We pray this in Jesus name, amen.